This episode of AD History is brought to you by listeners like you, contributing through the crowdfunding platform Patreon. Learn more about how you can support the show by visiting patreon.com forward slash AD History Podcast and the exclusive benefits that await you for your generous support. Join us in the effort to keep creating the AD History you deserve by visiting patreon.com forward slash AD History Podcast. Thank you. Have you ever wondered if the regions of Rome ever attempted to become their own empires? Well, have we got a story for you. This is the AD History Podcast, weaving a tapestry of world history from 1 AD to HD. Powered by TGNR. Get your good news that's real news at TGNR by visiting tgnreview.com. Now here are your hosts, Paul K. DiCostanzo and Patrick Foote. And brought to you via London and New York City, you are listening to the AD History Podcast. I am Paul Katie Costanzo, and I am joined by my co-host, Patrick Foote. Patrick, welcome back. Yes, thank you, Paul. And uh, I just wanted to start this episode by saying a huge thank you to Robert for covering for me in the last episode. It was, it was so good. It was great to listen to AD History as purely a fan, as a listener. Robert brought so much to the table. I definitely couldn't have brought it. I don't think you could have as well, Paul. Nope. It was so wonderful. Thank you, Paul, for just doing your thing. You're still being there. Despite me having to be away, you still covered and we still got an episode out. And by the time you're listening to this, I might actually still be away. But the magic of scheduling, some recording movie magic, Paul, it's really quite impressive stuff. But Huge thank you. Apologies I couldn't be there last episode, but trust me, you guys got a splendid episode otherwise. Like, you probably got a better, better episode than if I was there, but... Oh, 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 none of that. <laughs> none, none of that, Patrick. Oh, no. Well, a definitely a different episode, something that we couldn't have covered, like the whole economic side of things. I knew, I knew the economy played a big part in the crisis, but I had no clue how to present that information. And Robert kind of just fit the mold perfectly. He knew what he was talking about in regards to money. And it was a perfect guest. It was one of those great just synergy moments where what we were talking about and who we had on just lined up perfectly. It really couldn't have been any better. It was truly just the planets and the stars aligning by all means. And obviously we needed a guest host because when we're doing 80 history and there's so many episodes, you know, it's not reasonable to expect that we'll be able to do all of them. Mm. But so long as one of us are here bringing in a really good highly qualified guest host because one mm. thing that's true about AD history and we've really stuck to this which is that anytime we bring somebody in certainly as a guest contributor their credentials are solid and that they're going to bring to us something special in this case he played double duty and i know for a fact he took it as a great honor and incredible pleasure very complimented by it and most certainly would be interested in, to come back, certainly as a guest contributor, but if ever needed as a guest host. So hmm. I really enjoy doing it. So does he. I'm glad you got to listen to it. That is kind of a surreal experience after all these episodes, all this time to truly listen to it as a member of the audience. But it was a blast. And thank you so much. And, and guys, wherever you're listening to us right now, we hope you enjoyed it. But as far as today is concerned, we are now at 261 AD to 270. AD. Both of our segments today, Patrick, most certainly deal with Rome's crisis of the third century, which they are currently very much stuck in the mud. And of course, I'll be completing my segment from last time on the Gallic Empire. But you are going to take a very different look at another splinter state. I am indeed poor because <laughs> if it wasn't bad enough, one part of the Roman Empire split enough doing its own thing. Imagine another part of the empire splitting over doing its own thing. They call this crisis a crisis for a very good reason. Cheers, cheers, my friend. It's going to be a great episode. And with that, <laughs> it's time for our necessary, obligatory, now legendary AD History Podcast Ground Rules. 1. Evaluate events in the context they occurred. 2. Over the span of recorded history, the way it was recorded, its methodology, and the facts that are important have changed immensely. How we view history today is not necessarily how we viewed it 50 years ago. 3. Nothing in history was inevitable. And 4. History and the past is like a different country. Mr. Foot, Sir Patrick, 
you have the floor. Thank you very much, Paul. So, yep, 261 to 270 AD. Things are going from bad to worse. Who thought it would be possible? Who thought it would be? No, but as you covered in our previous episode, the crisis was really starting to reach a breaking point, and quite literally a breaking point, as the empire was literally breaking apart. That was, of course, with the Gallic Empire, which, Paul, you're going to cover in a bit more detail in the latter half of this episode. Woo! (laughs) Woo, indeed. However, the Gallic Empire was not the only part of the Roman Empire that would splint off and try and govern itself, as in 270 AD, another part of the empire would follow the Gallic Empire's footsteps. However, instead of being all the way over in the west of the empire, this separate empire was located in Rome's far east. This was, of course, the Palmyra Empire. And you might be wondering, what on earth was Palmyra anyway? This is a city that is located in modern-day Syria. There's not an actual city anymore. It's just ruined remains. But in today's standards, it would be in modern Syria. And it became part of the Roman Empire in the first century AD. And due to its location in Syria, in that sort of part of the world, it became incredibly important for strategic and economic reasons. And Paul, we come, whether we with the Kushan Empire, with the Sassanids themselves, this is so often an incredibly important part of the world. It's literally the cradle of civilization. It is absolutely the cradle of civilization. In fact, the Romans have been fighting with the Parthians, then the Sassanid Persians for Mesopotamia for a good deal of our show. And it's interesting, and the biggest reason, and certainly if you were listening to our last episode, you would have picked up on this. One of the big reasons it was so strategically important was its extremely significant economic influence. That's where the money was. It really was just like everything that everything between Rome and China, Rome and Asia, in fact, would all go through that. It's just constantly throughout history, this area of land has just remained so important and just so, there's always a lot going on. I'll put it bluntly like that. (laughs) Very little has changed. Yes. So, and this meant Palmyra was a incredibly wealthy city, as you mentioned, is the economic impact there. And of course, with wealth came a degree of power. And actually by the third century, Palmyra had a degree of independence to run itself. However, it was still just a client state to the Roman Empire. And as we've already discussed in previous episodes, Rome was in a bit of a state itself right now. And quite frankly, many in Palmyra wanted to know why this shit show of an empire had rule over them. And this led to some wanting Palmyra to be independent. And one of those people in particular was Queen Ziombia. Was she queen at this moment? You'll find out. But who exactly was Ziombia? Uh, we don't seem to be too sure on her exact origins. It's thought she was possibly born in 240 AD. So if we believe this, during the crisis, she would have been just 20 years old or in her 20s during the crisis. And this is something that really struck me, Paul. We haven't really focused much on the ages of these people. Like, we only really mention age if they're particularly young, I've noticed. Like, if it's a child emperor, we tend to talk about that. But like, to know Zeobia at this time was in her 20s, that's, that really hits at home as someone in their 20s anyway. <laughs> Yeah, you know, that's something I don't think necessarily most people really fully appreciate are are the ages of some of these people. And they obviously run the gamut, right? But Mm. by no means uncommon, and certainly it was the case with her, you find people in these incredibly powerful positions. They're very ambitious. They're very, very smart in politics, grant strategy, all of it. They're out to get something and it's very important to them. And so you can go anywhere from like your early to mid 20s where somebody ends up in this incredible Mm. position of power and they want more early 50s on top of the fact most of them didn't live nearly as long as today. So what was mid 20s then is definitely not mid 20s now. But what can I say? That's it's almost an impossible thing to truly appreciate in many respects to think, oh, God, I'm older than they were. Yeah, it's one of those sort of like, oh, my God, like. Queen Zenobia was already like taking over an entire empire in her 20s. And what were you doing in your 20s? Like, uh, kind of makes you feel a bit bad. But like you said, it was a different age. I'm sure she was probably having a midlife crisis by now as well. <laughs> Assuming they had such thing. <laughs> yes. Um, so as I said, her background remains rather unknown to. Not only does her age and birth remain unknown, we're not too sure where she even came from. There are some theories that she was of Greek or Arab descent. 
though the ever trustful Augustan history states Chech had ties to Cleopatra. And we've talked a lot about the um, history of Augusta in the past, and it's not our best source of information. It's fraught with a lot of controversy among scholars, and it has been for quite a long time now. The dating on which it was actually written, there are quite a few scholars that reject the idea that this thing was being written in the late second century or whatever the case it was, and that it would make more sense based on their, the sources they used insofar as they're able to verify them that it would happen a good deal later. Mm. In addition to the fact there's also issues with scholarship. I believe in the history of Augusta, it claims to have six different authors, <laughs> which is interestingly interesting enough and somewhat problematic in this case for a number of reasons. But I remember one historian saying, it tells a good story, but I don't know that it tells a great history. That's a really good way to put it. Sometimes the story can take over the actual history, mm. even though it's not true. Like Sometimes people just love a good story. Sometimes they get, get a little bit carried away with themselves. But regardless of her actual ancestry, it seems that she was from a wealthy Palmyra family. And it's also thought that she would have been well-educated, which of course was somewhat of a rare claim for a woman of the age. And at the start of this decade, in 260 AD, she was wedded to one Odonathus, and he was no nobody, however. And because it was in this year of 260 AD, Odonathus became king of Palmyra. And that, of course, made Zeombia his queen consort. Well, his queen consort anyway. Undoubtedly, the marriage to Odonathus was an incredible opportunity for her. She ended up, obviously, after he died, benefiting a great deal, and it gave her an opening to realizing her greater ambitions, which I think mm. is awfully interesting. Mm. And they're in the Roman Empire, but they're not truly Roman in many respects. But the thing that's interesting, especially anything having to do with power structure and any sort of struggle that's going on in the Roman Empire, and just the history we've covered, you and I have come across a number of women yeah. Who have been very influential. Like, for example, one that I always like to cite, of course, is Livia, which was Augustus's second wife. And Livia was essentially the other side of the coin to Augustus. He took very serious stock in what she had to say. And even when he died, she was very much an honored widow who was treated with great consideration. And she was mm -hmm. never out of the game un un until she was no longer on this earth. Yeah. And then we go a bit later, and when a lot of women that start becoming more overtly influential, as opposed to it being done largely behind closed doors, obviously that's the time when Rome would get touchy. And, and in those cases, sometimes, like we saw with either Caracalla or uh, Justin Severus, it ends up being part of their demise. So she really sticks out because... She's doing something in a lot of ways relative to the Roman world where there's not a hell of a lot by way of comparison. Definitely. No, yeah, especially, yeah, we said within Roman Empire itself, like, this is just very unheard of. It's always great when we can find these really good women in history. But, of course, <laughs> she had kind of a husband to deal with first. Undoubtedly. King Odonathus, while he was king and he rose quickly, he kind of fell just as quickly because his reign as king of Palmyra was short but very eventful. He was able to do something that Rome failed to previously, and that's actually beat the Sassanids. So in 263 AD, after first expedition into uh, Syria, he tried to claim Palmyra. However, Odonathus was able to fend the Sassanids off, and this made Odonathus a beloved figure in the Roman East, and he garnered titles such as King of Kings in the East. And he's not the first guy we know of to have a title like this, is he, Paul? No, no, he is not. In fact, King of Kings, more, more accurately translated into the Persian tongue of the time, Shahanshah, was... Which is a title we've heard already, yes. Oh, we most certainly have heard it already. Specifically in regards to the Sassanid Persians, with, in the case of Adashir I, and of course his successor and son, who called themselves... Shahan Shah. So you look at this and you can't help but think, especially the fact that Odonathus was successful against him in battle, that it was both potentially a middle finger and simultaneously a challenge because 
he did not choose that title arbitrarily. Yeah, so you got to wonder if this was kind of like a bit of a, as you've written in the notes here, Paul, a bit of a middle finger to Adashir the first. Yeah, it's it's hard to say. I don't know what the grand impact of it was, but I can certainly understand the symbolic mm. end of it as well. Which, like I said, I am certain he chose that quite deliberately. Yeah, so I, I wouldn't be surprised by that. And this, but this, regardless of why he took that name, this made him an incredibly powerful and respected figure. Uh, at this stage, he was probably the most powerful and respected figure in the east of Rome. And this allowed him to rule over not just Palmyra, but the entire Eastern Empire. And that was all considered under his rule. This was, and this gave Palmyra all the more reason to wish to become independent for, from Rome. They were like, we have all this power, all this land. Why, why, why are we still attached to Rome? And uh, Odenathus would have made a great king of the empire. However, all that power comes at a price. And in 267 AD, he was assassinated by a relative of his. Da-da-dun-dun-dun. Yes. Another one bites the dust. Another one bites the dust, indeed. And the reason behind this death isn't completely clear to us, but he does die. And with Odenathus dead, his son Wallabullet becomes the king of Palmyra. However, he was just a child at the time, and Zenobia saw this as her chance to rule herself. So Guess what she did, Paul? She appointed herself as her son's regent and effectively became queen of the empire. And oh boy, another child ruler with a regent. Have we seen this before, Paul? We've seen the friggin' movie time, time, time and again. It's getting old, guys. It's getting old, but it's not going anywhere. What I find interesting about this is normally we see this when an empire is starting to fall to pieces. We've seen this at the start of an empire. So if you're kind of wondering how the Pymira Empire was going to go, if they're already relying on a regent and a kid at the very beginning, you can kind of see that this probably isn't going to go too far. It isn't great. No. <laughs> Let's put no, it that way. No, it, okay. is, it, it isn't great, but yeah. she understands the opportunity that's in front of her. Yeah. And, you know, in truth be told, as far as I'm concerned, and certainly they certainly saw it that way at the time, which is that. She seemed to be well within her rights to do it. You know, this oh, was course, you know, this yeah. wasn't some a whole like Wong Mong just kind of swooping mm. in and taking advantage of the situation. His regent is his biological mother, as far as I know. Yeah. <laughs> as far yeah. as I know. But certainly recognizes his mother. Yeah, definitely. So it, it's not as dodgy as the likes of Wong Mong or even like Elagabalus, where he was kind of sort of like ushered in by saying he was an illegitimate child of a former emperor. As far as regents and uh, child emperors go, this is one probably one probably the most legitimate one we've had so far. And uh, so, one of the first things she did when she was in power was execute her husband's murderers, and then she seized control of all of these eastern territories. And these had come under her rule when Odenathus, as I mentioned, was dubbed king of kings in the east, and this gave her a sizable amount of land under her control. And this land included uh, Syria, Palestinia. Arabia Pateria, and a large part of Asia Minor, which is, of course, a modern-day Turkey. There's maps of the Palmyra Empire out there, so you can get a sense. It was, it was a big chunk of land. So by this time, Rome had been incredibly weakened, and Zenobia used her new power and Rome's weakened state to succeed from the empire. And Rome were really unable to stop her. And just, just, just to keep things easy, because they said no, it probably would have been worse for her. They recognized her sovereignty, went, yep, that's fine. Just do your thing. We've got enough stuff going on back here. You do your thing. And this meant Palmyra was now equal to Rome in power, but still technically a part of it. That's kind of the weird thing about this mm. splinter state is that mm. it has this strange, formal, but otherwise somewhat practically ambiguous relationship with the Roman Empire. And what she managed to accomplish is obviously extraordinary right this is these are areas that are of tremendous value not just to her conquering it but of course the romans will get to that idea in a moment the Sassanid persians certainly have their designs in this area to be sure and the fact that she gets into egypt mm. that is a big deal but are do the romans are the romans just outwardly accepting and so eh, you know i guess we can give it to her as far as i can tell 
especially when you're looking at all of the external and internal conflicts that are going on in Rome mm. in the crisis of the third century. As far as anybody is calling the shots, she's not yet the priority of who comes next to knock off. You know, they're just yeah. writing a temporary check to, you know, bridge the gap until she can be dealt with. And spoilers, she's going to be dealt with. Yeah. So I believe, and likewise, maybe spoilers, I think she's, I think there's the other empire they deal with first and then they go okay they're dealt with now let's solve these other guys the palmyrian between the sassanids the barbarians in the north they were just like okay yeah you do your own thing so yeah it's just it comes down to a bit of a priority i guess and uh so since this moment when they were declared their own power but still technically part of it bit by bit palmyra separated itself more from rome this is interesting because now especially if they're trying to distance themselves in Rome's sphere of influence. We'll start here. As far as strategically significant provinces in the empire, Egypt might very well, not might very well, was definitely number one because it was the breadbasket of the mm -hmm. empire. We've talked about this on quite a few occasions relative yeah. to the Romans and their formal inclusion of Egypt as an actual province under Augustus. Because since they are the breadbasket of the empire and Rome is so dependent on the import of agriculture that they get from Egypt, as are other places in the empire, if there is a usurper that is in charge of that, that is working at cross purposes with Rome's interests, that is almost a doomsday scenario. Exactly, Paul. And it was kind of that. It was kind of the claiming of Egypt. It was the straw that broke the camel's back. Because so she claimed Egypt for um, the Palmyrian Empire in 269 AD, and that was in Alexandria. She claimed Alexandria in that year. And then in 270, uh, she claimed all of Egypt. And yeah, for that spell, Palmyra uh, was completely in control of Egypt. And as I said that's kind of the straw that broke the camel's back in all this. Because it was also in this year, not only was it in this year that the Palmyrian Empire was well and truly its own thing, it was also in 270 AD that Aurelian came into power in Rome. And he was an emperor with some strong military might. And he had just one goal in mind, and that was to bring all of Rome back under his control and ending the crisis. And would he achieve this? Well, you'll see next time. And as we've kind of hinted towards with all this, you'll see how this turns out. <laughs> Yeah, you know, when we're when we're talking about her and we're talking about Egypt, Egypt is the red line. Yeah. And she crossed the red line and she made herself a far bigger target. And undoubtedly, she knew that <laughs> she knew that she knew it was a gamble, mm. a gamble that ultimately did not end up paying off. But that's really the red line, guys. And on top of that, you know, over the last couple episodes today and yesterday, and I'll say it again. It is absolutely stunning that they found their way out of this mire. It's so incredible. <laughs> it, it's literally the never-ending story. Sorry. Yeah, we're getting quite musical today. But <laughs> no, it, she's fascinating. Yeah, she, she's an interesting figure. For, for a lot of reasons. So when we're looking back on figures that we've covered so far in AD history... I would say that the only comparison relative to what we've covered as far as being a woman would, of course, be Queen Himeko in Japan. Yes. Though Zenobia, I would argue, had a, a far greater responsibilities and great projection of what was in her providence in terms of the things that she managed to do when directing this, well, splinter state, the Palmyrian mm. Empire, to the point in which she's literally taking a hammer from antiquity right to the Achilles heel of Rome. So based on whom we've studied so far, there's very little by way of comparison to be sure, but the ambition and the accomplishment and really playing the game as it's been played so far in Rome was incredibly impressive but she crossed the red line and when you start decoupling from rome's sphere of interest on top of the fact that apparently there was definitely a misperception that even though rome was in a crisis 
they didn't realize, of course, that there was somebody sitting in the wings named Aurelian who was going to make the rounds throughout the Empire to bring it back in one piece. And of course, he's the part one, I would say even act one, of the two-part act, which of course, first being Aurelian and bringing it all back together, and not too long from now, Diocletian. So these are the two really big figures that allow a emergence from Rome's crisis of the third century, and then ultimately coming to some kind of resolution that allows it to endure in a recognizable state to them, as I said in the past, for almost a century, which is also incredibly interesting. It's been so fascinating. I would by no means yet, but funnily enough, the crisis of the first century is actually starting to wrap up somewhat. I think in the next couple episodes, it will, I think it's 284, I think is the date the crisis is considered to be ending. Spoiler alert. Sorry, I should have alerted that. And it's been fascinating following like Rome go from absolute pits. And I'd say, I would say perhaps this time period is when it's as absolute most dire because you've got these two splintered states, but it actually solves itself pretty quickly in the next following years. It get it gets out of this deepest point kind of quickly afterwards. It's just fascinating. As I said, it's those two emperors in particular who will sort this out. If we put ourselves in that place and time and we emphasize a, a viewpoint of prospective history as opposed to history in hindsight, you know, I, I love this quote by Soren Kierkegaard, history is experienced forward but understood backwards. If you were alive, and even if you weren't a top decision maker in any of these powers, but certainly them to be sure, it's still very hard to imagine that what you just described in terms of what's coming up was going to happen. I hate always comparing it to what we're going through at the moment, but I remember- It's unavoidable in, like, in this case. It's yeah. unavoidable. But in like December 2019, if you were told, oh, by the way, everything's going to change in a few months time, you'd be like, what? No, it won't. And it can happen the other way. You could be in the middle of something horrendous and be like, we're never going to get out of this. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, it's only coming up. I mean, it's about 20 more years or so, but yeah, that, that's still a long old time if, if you were living through that. It is. And one thing I will definitely say, because it's really important, but there's only so many things we can realistically cover and you kind of have to prioritize. One mm. thing that is most definitely going to be in our What We Missed episode, and I hope with a, a bit of depth, of course, is discussing the Cyprian Plague. That's just one other thing we've completely blown over and that we will definitely be covering that. As just, It was actually quite a large factor in the crisis. We're going to have to have we're going to, have to do, we're going to have to do, Paula, what we missed for the third century and what we missed just for the crisis. Yeah, no, there's it's no question about it. There's just so much and you're making that hard editorial choices. You, you guys have heard me give this speech before, so I'm not going to give it again. But <laughs> what I will say is that in the previous episode that Robert and I touched on somewhat, not quite obliquely, but it certainly was mentioned. But we yes, know for sure that as far as what we missed is concerned, that's definitely going to get some serious attention because... It's deeply impactful. It's deeply interesting. And while sometimes people want to talk about a pandemic like they need a hole in their head at this point, yeah. can't yeah. deny the significance of it if we're trying to study and be students of history in the way we've set out to be. Yes, no, definitely. That's the Palmyra Empire, Paul. You've got your own empire to talk about as well, because as we mentioned, the Palmyra Empire wasn't the only splinter going on at the moment. No, it certainly was not. And things are going to get even fishier and the smell of rot even worse <laughs> from here. And with that, we'll be back right after a word from AD. This is the AD History Podcast. Keep up with the show and join the discussion by following AD History on Twitter with the handle at AD History PC and the hashtag AD History. Check us out over on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube by searching AD History Podcast, as well as, of course, tgnreview.com slash adhistorypodcast. Also, check out the AD History Podcast on Patreon. See how you can help support the show and the rewards that await you by exploring the AD History Podcast on Patreon. See the link in the description. Now, back to Paul and Patrick. And thank you, Anna. And Paul, did you know that our very own Anna Domini, she's got her own channel now, and it, it, it's quite unique, I'll say that. Anna, of course, 
has been a part of the show from the very beginning. An incredibly talented individual working in entertainment and hearing her other work, but especially the ones for us, I mean, we couldn't have asked for a better Anna Domini at any time. And something we want to plug because we care about Anna and she's part of the show is she's actually started a new YouTube channel called Stevie Says. Go into YouTube if YouTube's your thing or you're listening to it on YouTube right now. You can pause this real quick. Type in the term Stevie Says. S-T-E-V-I-E space S-A-Y-S. And give her a watch and give her a subscribe. She is incredibly talented. It's very clear that she's put a great deal of effort into it. And you will not be disappointed. She has truly been a true professional, certainly for AD history. And you guys go give a watch, give her a subscribe, and you will not be disappointed. So, Anna, Godspeed. Bravo, Zulu. Yes, thank you very much, Anna. And Paul, we are now heading over to a different part of the empire, which is also splintering off in its own way over in Ghoul and its Gallic Empire. Well, if you listened to our last episode, you know what the segment is going to be about. However, if you have not heard it, most definitely go back and listen. It'll make a lot more sense. But if you aren't, we are now getting into exactly how the Gallic Empire operated, how Posthumus led, and the fate of this grand schism that has occurred in Roman Gaul. And with that, I think it is best to set the scene. We are once again in 260 AD in Colonia Agrippina, and Posthumus has received orders from Salinius, who is Caesar heir apparent to Gallianus, the current emperor, and whose father is currently in Sassanid captivity, and Valerian being the only Roman emperor to ever be taken alive in battle. At this point in Colonia Agrippina, Posthumus receives orders from Salinius. He was told to march his troops to Colonia Agrippina because Salinius wants to make sure that the belongings that were stolen from Roman citizens that were in northern Italy that fell victim to a German raiding party, which Posthumus's troops repelled and basically took those belongings back, and then Posthumus goes on to share that with the troops, it doesn't sit well with the decision makers in Rome. Not at all. And so they give an order, march your troops to Colonia Agrippina, where your troops will relinquish this property of the Roman citizens it was originally taken from. And this puts Posthumus in a very difficult position, because we know how insubordinate the Roman military has become, how transactional they are in assessing their fortunes. And when they get there, Posthumus goes again before his troops and says, are my hands tied? I don't agree with this, but I don't know what to do. Well, his troops did. And it was at that time, in 260 AD, in Colonia Agrippina, where the Gallic Empire was truly born. Once Salinius arrives in Colonia Agrippina and faces and meets Posthumus and his troops, he and his coterie are murdered and Colonia Agrippina itself is actually sacked by Posthumus's army. And with this great schism, with so many forces and so many resources, though by no means unlimited, certainly ones that have absolutely strategic limitations in terms of what Posthumus can achieve, the ahistorical trend here, as we mentioned in our prior episode, is that Posthumus doesn't do the one thing that so many of his predecessors in the same position have done, especially after Julius Caesar broke the taboo by crossing the Rubicon, and that is march with your troops on Rome. He demurs. 
So why exactly did he buck the trend? Why, why, why didn't he march on Rome? So this is something in which most scholars don't have a definitive answer, though there are some reasonable extrapolations we can make to get something of a picture of what's going on here. As far as he's concerned, at the moment, if we're looking at the empire in a bigger bird's eye view kind of macro picture here, he has a lot of contenders when he goes and does that potentially. So obviously you have Gallianus, who is the proper emperor of Rome at this point. And of course, Posthumus happened to murder his son. So there's a little bit of bad blood there. Of course, that's, I think, reasonably to be expected. On top of that, you also have another usurper that's been proclaimed emperor by his troops, which is Macrianus. And then, which of course, he, in that case, he's declaring his son's emperors. And, and interestingly enough, the reason he didn't do it himself is because he had, for whatever reason, he didn't feel he could, because he had something like of a deformity on his leg. What do you want me to tell you? As far as I know, uh, Augustus was not exactly the, the pinnacle of physical appearance in terms of his body. So I find mm -hmm. that kind of an interesting little little bit there. And on top of that, there's also the usurper Aemilianus. So at the moment, he has no less than three competitors. And they're all spread out over the empire, and there'll be more. Mm -hmm. And even though he has so much that's under his control militarily in the West, and that he has the support from his troops, to march on Rome would be essentially initiating that struggle. And the truth of the matter is there is strategic limitations in terms of what he can do. You know, that you can only be in so many places at once. Mm -hmm. And believe me, anytime you're talking about military conflict, whether it is 1800 years ago or last week, concentration of force is definitely something that is timeless. So there's that. Two, you know, he's Gallic in origin. That's where he comes from. He's from the lower aristocracy of Gallic society. And so he has a definite connection to this place. And one of his big priorities, of course, is going to make sure that these people are properly defended because he made his name as governor of Germania Inferior repelling German raids across the Rhine. So it's interesting because normally the aim of most empires and emperors is to expand, 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 to claim as much land as possible. But you're saying he was quite happy with what he had, really. He didn't want more land than that. He just wanted to protect that land he already had. So it would appear. Now, mm. this empire of his, albeit short-lived, and he will not live to see its end either, no. is going to include more than just Gaul. It's going to include southern England, and for a time, it's also going to include Roman Hispania over there on the Iberian Peninsula. It's interesting that he bucks the trend this way, and who knows, he may not have had true interest in just doing the whole thing outright. But, and I think this is rather interesting, this is something that came to mind to me when we go back to the beginning of the season, and really the end of last season, mm. for all it's worth, is, of course, the year of the five emperors, where Septimius Severus came out on top. And if you remember correctly, Decimus Albinus was his last contender for, in the case of Septimius Severus, to defeat, to consolidate the entirety of, his of the empire under him. In that case, Albinus is sitting in control of Roman Britannia. And he believes that it is necessary to cross the channel and have a pitched engagement with Septimius Severus, and that it's the only way forward. And to be honest with you, I've always been a little clear on why. Because the way I saw it at the time, and I mentioned it back in that episode, it seemed very unusual to me that he didn't give serious consideration to the idea of, hey, maybe I can create my own fiefdom here, make this my place, make it my living room, and then turn it into Fortress Britannia. And I find it interesting that in this case, Posthumus is doing probably, at least as far as I know, and as far as I can understand and extrapolate, Albinus probably should have done if he's interested in his own longevity. But that's just a little bit of commentary. So there's a lot of that going on. And we're, like I said, we're still not entirely sure. But he is from Gallic society. He cares about these people. Mm. He wants to protect them. They are his own. 
they are his own, and they do seem to have a good deal of consideration for him as well. And when we go forward here, and and we're looking at this, not until 265 did Gallianus, the proper Roman emperor in this case, have the ability to initiate conflict with Posthumus over Gaul, due to these other distractions in the empire, and for him, for the most part, that he felt he had to deal with. Which, if you go five years before somebody is coming around, you know, with the baseball bat, that's a decent amount of time, to be sure. Mm. Even when Gallianus did eventually confront Posthumus, the results were at best mixed. Gallianus did not bring all Gallic-controlled territories back into the Roman orbit, except for territory that mostly encompasses modern-day Switzerland. And, of course, as I mentioned before, that ends up with the Gallic Empire taking southern England and, once again, for a time in Hispania. And this is something that I think is really interesting here, is now he's setting up a government, a means of administrating this society through him. He's at the top. You know, there's no question he's emperor. These political institutions are basically clones of the Roman political institutions. So you have a pair of elected consuls that are elected by a Senate, the whole deal. It's really funny because, okay, I'm going to start my own new state. I've broken away from Rome. Now I'm going to clone it. So who is this even for? Who's being included in this new government system? In terms of its participants, mostly, you know, mostly his own cronies from (laughs) roughly kind of the same place and, and level and, you know, somewhat higher born as well, members of Gallic society. And I suppose that makes sense to to a degree. You usually do that kind of thing for the most part, I suppose. But I find that really interesting that he's just importing it all. Yeah, like, yeah, we'll, we'll do it right this time. <laughs> well, he imported a lot more than that, to be sure, in terms of the political issues that are going to come up here. It's interesting is that in the case also of the military, it's basically structured like the Roman military because Let's face it, guys, his troops were, prior to being you know, loyal for however long that lasts, to the Gallic Empire, they were Roman troops. But he also does create a new Praetorian Guard as well. So he's not holding back here. The, the difference is, is that, no, we're going to bring in our own people and our own traditions, <laughs> but all that other framework sounds great. Let's do that. Sounds a bit like Bender with his blackjack and hookers. <laughs> <laughs> I think I was watching that episode last night. Yeah. I don't quite. Yeah, that's a great. You that's and your Futurama references, you always know exactly <laughs> when to drop them. You, you are uh, surgical. It's more Futurama thanking us with so many good references and uh, references we can use. And so in this case, he makes this whole, th- they makes this whole governmental structure. Hmm. And in addition to being emperor, he is elected as one of the consuls and he gets elected five times. Big surprise. He's also going through something of an imaging campaign for himself and this new power that he is founding. And in a way, he's making himself out to be at least the very proper successor to Rome, but also Gallic and Celtic at the same time. I'm not suggesting it's an ethnostate. That's Mm -hmm. not quite where I'm going with this. But it does seem like he is trying to communicate the image of being Gaul's native son. And that's like so interesting because it's been so long in history since Gaul had its own identity other than just being part of Rome. So do you think he's trying to drum up some idea of like Gallic or Gaul nationalism, be proud of our heritage? Because that's not really something we've seen. I, I guess the last time we saw any sort of Celtic or Gaulic uprising was with uh, Bodicea. And that was a long, long, long time ago. Well, yeah, definitely up there in, in, in Britain. Mm. So the term nationalism is, in many respects, a little bit of a difficult term to, to use at this period of time, because at least the way I conceive it is that when we talk about nationalism, it seems like a phenomenon that is more uniquely modern in regards to the nation state, in which case at this time in this place, not quite the same conception, but mm. but he is definitely seems to be quite keen on basically projecting a certain hybrid culture in which there seems to be something of a fusion of the best of both. And it works insofar as it goes. And it also makes sense because even though he serves Rome's interest 
and he was a governor of a Roman province in Germania Inferior. He's still Gaul's native son. And that's the thing. So he was Gaul's native son. He wanted Gaul to be this proud thing. But what did he actually manage to improve in Gaul once his Gallic Empire took over? Definitely point number one, security, security, security. Because as we were talking about in mm. the last episode, one of the very reasonable gripes of so many Roman subjects and citizens in the empire, in the provinces, especially ones more distant, is that they were beginning to lose confidence that Rome would be able to protect them. That's part of, as a non-Roman, non-Latin, indigenously, you get the idea. Part of the package in buying into the Roman system is that, okay, we're going to pay you taxes, but we do expect to be reasonably defended when there's a threat. And in the case of Gaul, as we mentioned in the prior episode, they're raising their own troops and they're making up their own fortifications and, and means of war because they don't think the Roman army can protect them. And you want to know what? For the most part, at the time, they weren't wrong. But there was an exception, and of course, that is posthumous and what he had done in Germania Inferior. So, security, security, security. Mm -hmm. And he manages to pull that off. So there is an element of stabilization there that is really key and certainly was a priority for him. Also, for a time, emphasize for a time, the economy was beginning to improve as well because he also has the ability to a decent degree to be able to do with the debasing of the currency, in that case in the Romans being Denarian Sesteris, where basically by the end, they're just dusted with silver and it's basically a copper coin. <laughs> we, yeah, we, we've covered other very notable figures. I can think of one in particular who tried to get away with copper coins. And so how yeah. that worked out, right? Sounds like we could have Robert back for that bit, but no. Um, yeah, no, I mean, just Wong, Wong Mong, remember he? Yeah, Wong Mong yeah, as well, of he course. Was yeah, he was gold, making him use copper. Oh, no, but I was just thinking about... um. Robert, because this whole coinish hyperinflation, that, all that stuff's coming to mind. This, it, 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 if you have to start printing your own money, I, I never think that that's kind of on par with a child region, um, a child emperor in a region of this podcast. Normally, those are two bad omens of an empire. It, it is, but the interesting thing is, even in these short-lived splinter states or whatever the mm. case may be, is it doesn't seem like they waste really any time creating their own coinage with them on it, and. Luckily, as far as I believe it's called pneumonization, which I think is like a study of coins. Oh, that's fun. That's fun. Yeah. That's, we get a lot of information about these periods in time by finding those in terms of just archaeological expeditions. Because as we yeah. mentioned all the way back, it's propaganda in your pocket, in addition to all the financial and monetary concerns as well. And so the reason he's able to do this is that with Hispana effectively aligned within the Gallic Empire is that Hispania hosts considerable operations for the mining of silver. Hispania was traditionally one of the major sources for silver in the Roman Empire. And for the most part, as I understand it, the major one. So it's a great benefit to him and certainly a great loss to Rome as well. So given with what has occurred with Roman denarii and Sesterius being debased as a currency, it hosts a much larger silver content. Unlike the denarii and the Sesterius, which by this time, as we discussed in our prior episode, was basically a copper coin dusted with silver. And that was simply never going to do. So what he did when he introduced this new Gallic currency was have it include a much higher silver content, which he could pull off because he had his Spagna in his hands. Silver being the valued precious metal that guarantees the value of the transaction. Like back in more modern history, when much of the world's currency operated on the gold standard prior to a system of floating exchangeable currency. The idea being that every paper currency note represented an actual small amount of gold being physically stored in some place like Fort Knox. So in a sense, he did away with the problem hectoring the debased Denaris and Sesteris. So combined between this effective renovation of the physical currency in addition to establishing security from the various border threats of Gaul, both were crucial in helping begin resolving and restoring the health of economic activity in Gaul, especially with the security issue, because Posthumus spends considerable time and effort in military conflict to achieve that during his first four years in power. And of course, on a very fundamental level, 
unless you have that kind of stability where the society in which you're ruling does not believe it's continuously under threat, until that security is established, there's no possibility of economic improvement and normal economic activity, which is the main reason why posthumous spent so much time, blood, and effort in attempting to do so. But unfortunately for posthumous and Gaul in total, these improvements are not going to last for very long. Spoiler alert. No. So how, how did this all fail? I get the sense this is going to start crumbling down on him. Well, yeah, it most definitely does to an extent. And certainly after he's gone, you know, the clock will begin ticking to be sure. Yeah. His troops, even though they're no longer technically Roman, have brought all of their horrible habits and expectations with them into the Gallic <laughs> Empire, which is to say that they're still the whip hand. <laughs> you know, yeah. we haven't been able to get rid of that. And still, you know, they want yeah. more pay because they've come to expect more pay, as did the generation before them and the generation before yeah. them. If you go all the way back to the beginning of the third century here, starting with that, you are now on your third generation of Roman legions that are continually in expectation that their fortunes will rise based on who is coming into power. And that's most certainly going on here. So they are expecting more and you kind of have to give in to it a bit. And then mm. you start getting back into the hyperplace. You got to make more, brings down the silver content. Mm. We had this discussion last time. Go listen to that episode if you haven't, if we want the better explanation, mm. a more complete one to be sure. And once again, they're bringing all their bad habits with them. A lot of what Posthumus did in terms of the things that he really did succeed at, in this case, is security, because he spent four or five of those years that he was in power. Not four, he was almost in power for almost about a part of a decade, which was keeping the German tribes on their side of the freaking Rhine. But there's another usurper in 269 by the name of Lilianus, who's proclaimed emperor of the Gallic Empire by his troops, and he has to put down that rebellion. In that case, the pitch conflict, the set-piece battle that put Lilianus in his place, was at a location called Mygontiacum, and ultimately, when Posthumus's troops were successful, they wanted to basically sack and raise the city. And in this case, Posthumus did something that he most certainly did not do in 260. When this thing all formed, he tried to rein them in and happened to be killed for his effort. And this is just another example of these troops who made like they can take away just as much as they give they were the ones who declared him emperor and now they're the ones killing him it's so odd how quickly these troops can turn their back and change their mind on who they think should be ruling them and they have the power to do so well they, they definitely they definitely do have the power to do so and they're out of control i mean one of mm. the big issues with this crisis is that the roman military especially the rank and file to the common legion with their sandals on the ground have become insufferably insubordinate. Take that for what it's worth. But on top of that, I mentioned a usurper, and I mentioned him importing the Roman governmental system. Not only is he importing that governmental system, and I think this is interesting and it makes sense if we're talking about a usurper with his own, his own ranks, who was mm. actually, Lilianus was one of his top commanders, is it's also bringing with it all the same really, really crappy political infighting and backstabbing and everything that goes with that. The culture of power in Rome during the third century is truly untenable and everything it touches turns to dust. So you figure we're going to go and we're going to found this new emperor. It's going to be under us. And, and what happens is you just invariably end up importing all of the same problems that Rome was having, except you've rebranded it as the Gallic Empire. It's interesting because this happened and on such a scale, but ultimately after Posthumus dies, it really begins to crumble. And within six years, it's no longer going to exist. And basically, this is what happens. Marcus Aurelius Marius was proclaimed emperor after the death and murder of Posthumus. And from what we can tell, I think a lot of this, I don't know how clear the records are. I believe this is actually coming off of dating of coins, things of that nature, archaeologically. He only ruled, as far as we know, for about a month. That's not too long. Yeah. And after that, Marcus Pivianus was made the Gallic Emperor after that. And in, you know, 274, the Gallic Emperor came 
clear to an end when the restorer of the world, as he was called at the time, then the Roman Emperor Aurelian defeated Tetricus at the Battle of Kalians, which for today, for looking at geography, was basically located in modern northeast metropolitan France. And when we look back on this case study of the Gallic Empire, how it came to be, why it came to be, how it operated once it was formed, what were the things it did well, what were the things it did not do well, what are things that could have been done better? And why is it so important that we decided to do a two-parter mm. on this short-lived empire? And for me, in studying it and doing research on the whole, taken as a whole, is that it is the truly best case study to understand Rome's crisis of the third century, specifically for those who were not ethnically Roman. What was it like to live out in the provinces? What were the issues they were dealing with and how were they suffering through it? That's something I find very interesting to me. You know, a lot of times we do top down history, but there's a lot of value if it's possible for doing history from the bottom up. So I think you were saying, what was it like to be out in the provinces, out in the sticks of the empire? Yeah, all this bottom this up going history. On? Yeah, this bottom up history. And I think this is kind of what we saw with the Palmyrian Empire in the fact that you've got these people who are fundamentally so far removed from this squabbling going on on the Italian peninsula. They're starting to think like, why are we being ruled by these people who are squabbling in Italy? We're our own people. And like, it comes up again with that Gallic pride and that, that pride in the East. And you know what it kind of reminds me of, Paul? Just the smidgen. What's that? It kind of reminds me of my own country where you've got like places like Scotland, like Northern Ireland, like, like Wales as well, of course. And they're sort of, there's people in those countries, especially with Scotland at the moment, thinking, why are we being ruled by this, by, by, by England, by London? Why, why, why is the authority over us all the way down the bottom of this island? Like, we're our, like, we're our own country. Why are we being ruled by them? I see that kind of link with what's going on here. Like, I'm, I'm not saying London is as much of a shit show as the Roman Empire is at the moment. It's kind of there, but not quite. <laughs> but um, I, I definitely see parallels in a very basic sense between these splinter states and uh, the concept of the United Kingdom splitting up. Well, that's an interesting modern take on it in terms of the events that are transpiring in, in the United Kingdom and your country right now. It's an interesting analogy looking at your country right now. Obviously, I can't really comment on it because I don't know all of the intricacies and nuances that come. I'm familiar with the bigger picture in terms of what's going on mm. and, and where it sits and that sort of thing. I was going to say, I think another great example, not to just talk about the UK all the time, and I'm not 100% versed on this scenario, but Catalan and Spain, wasn't that, like, it must, it's just this idea of having such unique identity to yourself and to your land area, but still being part of and being ruled by an empire you do not identify with, being ruled by a leader you do not identify with at all. You don't look the same, you don't speak the same language even. It must be an odd scenario. It is. And you can see these sort of things happen a lot in history, mm. to be sure, where you're asking yourself, well, what am I getting from this? Mm. And for the most part, even if you were not ethnically Roman for a long time, there were a lot of benefits to buying into the empire. Yeah. But when it's acting like a negligent, degenerate, you know, spoiled child that just cannot get <laughs> its garbage together. That's when those questions are being asked. And to be honest with you, they probably should be asked. Luckily for Rome, at least for a century, that doesn't happen in a significant way, but there are definitely reforms coming. And yeah, you, you see this, you see this a lot. And really on top of that, one of the most important parts, and we're talking about this bottom up history, which so often gets overlooked because you talk about great powers and individuals. And if you are a professional historian, whether it's academic or edutainment, whatever the case, or I like to consider you and I historical specialists and presenters, to mm. be sure. Yes, that's a good way of putting it. One of the most difficult things, and this is a constant ongoing debate in terms of how history is understood by the people who are actually creating the history, and let's make a demarcation between history and the past. History is how 
we record and interpret those events and put them down mm-hmm. on paper, whereas the past events are just something that are unrecoverable and can only be reconstituted through the best evidence that we have, which is always imperfect, to be sure. And that is the whole, is there the great man of history, or is it just these huge contextual flows that no one individual has the ability to truly influence or in any way alter its course? The way I put it there makes it sound very diametrically opposed, and for some people it is. But for you and I, and it's certainly been my experience as well, and I'm curious your thoughts on this, Patrick, in many ways it's both, which is to say that for the most part, you have these great historical forces that are moving things along. Nothing is inevitable, you know, Mm. ground rules, you know, ground rules, but every once in a while, there is the absolute right person in the right place at the right time to handle a given task that has emerged from it and where that very moment in history, they have a very unique opportunity to make that sort of influence that is otherwise incredibly difficult. And you and I very much straddle that line, especially when Mm. you're looking at ancient history, because it's harder to get the idea of the bottom up history. And so naturally we're doing this in terms of the crisis of the third century from both sides of the pyramid. And that's important. And so when I look at our episode today, whether it's the Palmyrian Empire, whether it's the Gallic Empire, whether it's the Roman Empire as a whole, (laughs) and what we're learning from this, well, what we're learning from it is, one, a stable political system really does matter. A mechanism in terms of transfer of power would have been nice several decades ago. You know, there's no question about that. Mm. Never, ever underestimate if your government very successfully and fairly, fairly, has the ability to have the transfer of power for those who are in charge, whether it be executive, whether it be legislative, to leave office once they have run their term and they are no longer have the credentials given by the public to fulfill that role. And Rome has been without it. They found workarounds. I mean, we look at the five good emperors, right? Mm. That's, that, that's, that's all workarounds. That's ad hoc. Mm. They just adopt somebody they think will be good or people are putting up pressure on them because they think they'll be good and they'll make them their son. And king and dynasty, of course, king being an absolutely taboo term in the case of the Romans, that's exactly what's happening here. They're just not calling it that. And so when we look at this great crisis of the third century, and we're going to wrap it when we get to Diocletian, Mm. which is going to be the bow, we're going to look back at that moment, see what he did compared to where we were this episode or before, and truly be in awe of what he managed to do, in addition to Aurelian managing to bring it all in one piece again. And I'd like to think you and I, Patrick, have definitely done a very good job of seeing what's going on from both the top and the bottom, and getting all the various players involved as best we can, and we'll, we'll do some mopping up in what yeah. we missed. And that's something to look forward to, both Diocletian and what we missed. I mean, what do you take from this, Patrick? You've been sitting here listening to all of this for a while. What, what do you take away from all of this based on the things that we have explored in such depth? Just in general, what you kind of said, really, like how this was a very bizarre time. It could have so, you say, it had the right person, right place, right time. And luckily, we had two of those people, Aurelian and Diocletius, a few, a few years down the line. And if they weren't there, the Roman Empire could have been over an awful lot sooner. But luckily, like I said, it worked out. Compromises that like we had with the five good emperors, with the five good emperors, we just, it figures itself out, at least it did to an extent. And that is what happened here. Luckily, we found the right people to end this crisis. Yeah. And one of the best ways you do it is competent leadership that isn't corrupt as hell. Mm-hmm. Don't just give your kid the job because they're your kid. Or, you know, continually giving in and, you know, basically being at the end of the sword of your own military. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it, it drives you nuts. It's amazing how they get out of it. And when we get to Diocletian, I definitely would, though it's usually out of our ballpark, take a few minutes and think about the people who were in the right place at the right time, being the right person to handle this unique crisis in a way that in all likelihood 
nobody else could have had they not shown up on the scene. And us here, you there. And we'll be back right after a word from AD. This is the AD History Podcast. Well, that does it for us today. Patrick, where can people find us? You can find me personally, primarily on Instagram at NameExplainYT. But you can also find me on Twitter at NameExplainYT. And of course, on YouTube, search NameExplain. What about you, Paul? In addition to my usual work at TGNR at TGNReview.com, you can find me at my Twitter handle at PKD in History, as well as my reader-submitted World War II Q&A column, The World War II Brain Bucket, where I answer all World War II-related questions, which, if you are on YouTube, we will have a link down in the description. That's all today for myself. Goodbye, thank you, and take care. Yes, thank you all so much. Until next time. Like all good things, we come to an end for today. Thank you for listening to the AD History Podcast. It is listeners such as yourself who make this show possible and truly awesome. Be sure to follow and subscribe for upcoming AD History Podcast episodes, available wherever podcasts are found. Also, follow AD History on social media. Follow the show on Twitter at the handle at ADHistoryPC, as well as on Facebook by visiting facebook.com slash adhistorypodcast and Instagram as AD History Podcast. In addition to liking and subscribing on YouTube by searching AD History Podcast. Do you have a direct comment or question for Paul and Patrick? Drop them an email at adhistorypodcast at tgnreview.com. Also, be sure to visit the show's homepage at tgnreview.com slash adhistorypodcast. For Paul and Patrick, thank you for listening to the AD History. We'll see you again next time in the ever-growing tapestry of world history.